Appreciate that. Hebrews chapter number 7. You grab your Bibles, join me there. Hebrews chapter number 7. We continue our look here. And, uh, oops. Fantastic. Continue our look at the supremacy and superiority of our Savior. Past few weeks we've been looking here, and I hope you have an outline. And uh, I'm back with the prayer bulletin. If you don't, Brother Ron Ruby's going to make his way down the middle aisle. And uh, young and as agile as he is, he'd be glad to give you an uh, outline. I know how to kiss up to a deacon, don't I? Okay. Uh, you get his attention if you would. And uh, if you need an outline, we sure would like for you to follow along. It's been a great study. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. It's been exciting to see. And uh, what the author here, who I believe to be Paul, lays out for us in Christ being after the order of Melchizedek. And so we've been reacquainted with him, haven't we? These last couple of weeks, Melchizedek has a little as we found mentioned about him. But we have learned some from that information. Look at verse number one again, Hebrews chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, and again, he was mentioned back in verse 20 of chapter six, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And so we see that interaction with Abraham mentioned once again. And we come, have come to the realization of the picture of him as the type of Christ, okay? It's an Old Testament type of Christ, and we said we, we've seen several things in this type. Obviously, as you see, overall, we talked about the superiority of his priesthood. Uh, we understood that and uh, came to that realization. He goes on, you see verse 2, to him also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king Salem, which is uh, king of peace, okay? We'll stop there for a moment. We talked about how there's some things presented in these first few verses that kind of uh, give us a foundation uh, of uh, superiority of Christ, right, in the minds of the reader, especially the Jewish reader, and uh, cement those thoughts. And several things presented to us. We said the first one was this, letter A, the extent of the priesthood. You remember, as we recounted, the priesthood in Judaism was strictly national. It was strictly Jewish. So it had to deal with a Jewish nation, and um, God had taken that name Jehovah or Yahweh and uh, heavily connected to the Jews specifically. And I know we're going to go quick. Hopefully you remember these blanks are right quick from last week, all right? And uh, it's connected to the covenants, right? We call that his covenantal name, Jehovah, as dealing with uh, Israel. Well, the contrast here is this is written in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, repeated even here, is that it refers to Melchizedek as the uh, priest of the most high God. And uh, a, a terminology, a description that is more universal uh, in its usage, a term of God encompassing the whole world and all nations in that sense, and adds also there that repeated, again, Genesis chapter 14 is found a couple times, the possessor of heaven and earth. So really speaking to his overall authority, sovereignty over all nations there, okay? It's a title that exists above all national and dispensational distinctions we may note of, okay? Uh, there's a great significance to that statement. What is it? Well, Jesus Christ, who is after the order of Melchizedek, is not simply the Messiah and priest of Israel, but of the whole world. And that is the implication here. That is the, the point being made accordingly. He was a priest, not just for Abraham, the Jewish nation, but for for God to the whole world and uh, called the priest of the most high God. That was the extent of the priesthood. It pictures the extent of uh, Christ's priesthood. Again, we're just reviewing from last week. And uh, if I'm going too quick, look at your outline from last week, okay? Um, we learned three things, right? The, or this should have, the, for the Jewish believer, uh, he should have come to the understanding of three things. The Jewish believer would have to acknowledge from his own scriptures, okay, the existence of a priesthood before that of Aaron. And that's a, that's a strong statement, okay? 
the existence of it before, and completely separated from the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Okay? Number two, that it existed again long before the Jewish priesthood. And finally, the reality that the father of their nation both recognized it and submitted to it in the giving of tithe. And that's a powerful statement. We said that that, was a, you know, that would have been hard for them to come face to face with, but yet that's exactly what the author is uh, uh, really up, uh, going back and appealing to that story in the Old Testament to make the point here in the New Testament, that this order of Melchizedek is just as legit, just as valid as the Levitical priesthood, if not more so. Okay? Then we talked about the royal nature, if you remember, of the priesthood. And I, this is a great part because in the Old Testament realm, there was a huge distinction, a separation between the throne and the altar. Okay? Uh, there is clear and distinct. All of Israel knew it. There's never, we saw Old Testament examples of that reality. We've seen them as we've studied Hebrews here. And there was a huge disparaging uh, gulf between the throne uh, where the king was and the altar where the priest ministered. And so that was true throughout. Judaism, well acknowledged, well recognized. But in this man, Melchizedek, those two offices were combined. They were joined together, and that is the significance there. It's a, he was a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's priesthood and his lordship, the high priest and our Lord all at the same time, and united in one person. Okay? We also alluded to the fact that Melchizedek in Genesis chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 2 here, okay, as he was in Genesis chapter 24, he's alluded to as the king of Salem, Salem being uh, uh, an old, uh, a term for the old city uh, that became known as Jerusalem. And uh, we made the correlation, if that's the case, and uh, as it is certainly referred to that, Though we don't know when God first designated Jerusalem as his special holy city. We know it has a, a special place in his heart. It would appear that even during the time of Abraham, there was a faithful priest and king serving and ruling long before Israel's kings and priests ruled and served in the city. And, and a, a picture, a looking ahead to when the Messiah, he himself would rule and reign as both the king and the high priest there in Jerusalem. And so that was a great challenge. Here's how we finish, if you remember. Then the Jewish nation, there is a great somewhat biased uh, prejudice towards other people. They, they would recognize certainly God as creator and sustainer. And in that, they'll say, hey, he belongs to the whole world. But as Savior and Lord, he belongs to them alone was the mentality of the Jews. It wasn't for the Gentile. It wasn't for the Greeks. It wasn't for anybody else. We're not, he's our Lord. He's our Savior. And so our God. And we put the statement out that they couldn't imagine another divine, a, a, a better divine covenant, another divine priesthood, especially one that was royal and superior to their own. And very much it was a hard pill to swallow for many a Jew that we can imagine. Now, we have studied Romans here, and part of the reason for such an ex exhaustive book known as Romans was because of that mentality. He's having to write and explain some things to Jews. Listen, here's, here's things that transpired. And in that, he deals in the middle of Romans with the Jews and how they rejected Christ and, and now is open to all uh, Gentiles and such. And so uh, it's a big deal of explaining the process here. Okay? And so just in these few verses here, we see a great challenge to the thinking and understanding of the typical Jew. Okay? In calling them to consider Jesus Christ 
as uh, the great high priest of a greater order of priests than the Levitical priesthood. Letter C, new for tonight, as we look at it, you see the permanency of the righteousness and peace of the priesthood. Let's read verse 2 again, okay? Focusing in on this thought, the permanency of the righteousness and peace of this priesthood, Melchizedek's priesthood, and obviously a picture of Christ's priesthood. Verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First, being by interpretation king of righteousness. And after that, also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now, great statement, obviously, and uh, it's a powerful statement in what it represents. We read Paul writes what? Well, first being by interpretation. Well, it begs the question, why does he put it that way? What does he mean by interpretation? Well, he's alluding to the name or the term Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the term comes from two Hebrew words that mean king or ruler and righteous or just. Righteous or just, or king and ruler, okay? And I don't believe that's by accident. I don't believe we come across his name, and it's by accident he's named what he is, a righteous ruler, a righteous king, a just king. Uh, I think God certainly, in his wise sovereignty uh, and omniscience, uh, uh, picked this name perfectly to represent that. We don't know anything about his rule. We don't know how he ruled his city, whether uh, the king of Salem, but we can guess and surmise that, uh, safely assume that he ruled in righteousness uh, during his time as a king. There's something else that's added to that. We've hit on it a little bit, but now we want to add a different aspect to it. He's referred to as the king of Salem, okay? The term Salem is actually um, derived from the Hebrew word that is a form of the word shalom, okay? Now, if you and I have ever met a Jewish person, they might have greeted you or uh, said farewell with the word shalom. Okay, and uh, it's a common way for Jews to greet one another, and we all know what, well, most of us, some of us may know what shalom means. What is shalom for? Peace, right? Yes, yeah, for peace. And so we see that terminology that this is, when he says king of Salem, he is the king of peace. And so you have a, a twofold picture. He's the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And combined, again, this is the amazing thing because the scriptures will speak of this often concerning the Messiah, concerning the coming Christ, the Savior, uh, the anointed one, what Christ means. And so uh, it, it is a tremendous picture here of the Old Testament that is reiterated here, okay? Well, again, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. We know that he was not perfect in his righteousness. We know that he could not provide lasting righteousness or perfect peace. Uh, yet, it's no accident that these two descriptions are given to Melchizedek, who is a type, a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And that's in a couple ways. Now, let's think about this in the application. First of all, when we think of Jesus Christ, the reality is this. It pictures what Christ has done for us spiritually, what he can do for anyone spiritually. Within that Levitical priesthood system, the sacrifices, we're well aware, is they would offer a lamb, they would offer a dove, or whatever the, the sacrifice would call for. It could never atone, the blood sacrifice specifically for the sins and, and such. It could never permanently give righteousness to the individual in order to restore the relationship with God in a deep and lasting way. 
it, it was fallible in that it did not last. It was not, it was not re- restorative uh, to the degree of eternality, okay? It, was not, it, it did not provide righteousness that, that would last. In fact, they would have to repeatedly come as they sin. They would have to come every year, give atonement, the Day of Atonement for the entire nation. And so it had to be repeated because it was temporal. It was not deep and lasting. It did not provide a righteousness for the person who's offering the sacrifice that would uh, stay with them if you could describe it as such. Furthermore, the sacrifices could never, we know this, could never completely remove sin. Only Christ's sacrifice can do that. Perfect and lasting peace with God was never experienced through the Old Testament law. Through the Old Testament sacrifices in the Levitical system, only Christ could make that happen. And so what we come to understand about the Levitical priesthood, it served a purpose, but it was never perfect. It was never complete. It was never to be the end all to end all, right? And so we understand that the, it failed specifically at making men righteous and giving men peace. When we talk about the permanency of peace, there was no lasting uh, atonement. There was no lasting righteousness given to man. They could quickly have to offer another sacrifice in the old system. Uh, and the old uh, rabbinical, Levitical system here of sacrifices and such. Okay? Jesus Christ, our Savior, the true and lasting high priest, is the only one that can do that. That's what I alluded to Romans before. Boy, Paul makes a great point. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Notice this verse. It's so powerful as we come to understand even here in Hebrews. Notice what it says. Therefore, being justified. Okay, by faith. Justified mean being made righteous, right? In God's sight, you and I have put on Christ's robe of righteousness. We have exchanged it for our filthy rags. We have uh, taken on the robe of righteousness. Having been made righteous by faith, we have what? Peace. We have peace, and that's a lasting and complete peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I believe it's why the King James translators decided to, to get the chapter break there, because that is a powerful statement. It, it, it is saying, listen, now look at us. We are justified through faith in Christ. We've been made righteous. Those sacrifices could never do it. It could never accomplish it. No good works of yours could ever accomplish it. It is only found in Jesus Christ by faith. And in that justification, because we have taken on the robe of righteousness, now you and I stand before an almighty, holy, perfect God, and he sees Christ's righteousness, and now you and I are at peace with him. We have perfect peace. And it paves the way for you and I to spend all of eternity in the presence of a holy God. We could never have such righteousness on our own. We could never obtain the presence of him with him for all of eternity in heaven. It's only through Jesus Christ because we are at peace with him. My friend, that's enough to get a Baptist excited, amen? I mean, we have a lot. This is fantastic what Christ has done for us and what he's accomplished and who he is for you and I. Now, secondly, not only does he provide peace and righteousness like no other can, spiritually, number two, I like this point that we see that Melchizedek presents for us. The fact is this, it pictures Christ uh, that he alone can do for us physically. What is that that he can do? Well, his future rule and reign and service, his ministry, will be characterized by both righteousness and peace. One of the joys we had at studying Isaiah, I love all of the references in those chapters that we looked at, the looked ahead to the coming Messiah, the coming kingdom specifically, the millennial kingdom. There was a whole lot of good stuff in Isaiah about that. There is. And uh, one of those chapters we looked at was Isaiah 32. In verse number one, it says this, and again, a powerful passage. The future reign is described here. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. So there is a presentation, the Messiah 
Messiah is going to come. He's going to rule. Christ, the anointed one, will rule uh, in righteousness. And he goes on to describe what is the byproduct of this righteousness. When you have righteousness, what does it produce in a kingdom or in one's life even? We find it answer here in the same chapter in verse 17. 18. And the work of righteousness shall be what? Okay, that was actually for you to say, by the way, in case you missed that. Okay, okay, let's try that again. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. Okay, so exactly what Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says. But listen, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is talking about it spiritually here in Isaiah chapter 32 verse 1. And then now verse 17, he's talking about it physically. The exact same thing, the one thing that every nation, every kingdom, every rule in uh, this world done by mankind was achieving or trying to achieve and has failed miserably at is the one thing that Jesus Christ will bring, and that's peace. The work of righteousness. Why? Because there's never been a group of people that have been made righteous. Okay, governments are good at handing out money. Governments are good at taking away liberties. Governments are good at everything else, maybe fighting wars. But they cannot give righteousness. Only Jesus Christ can. In the future kingdom, we'll see a nation, a citizenry full of righteousness. And my friend, can I tell you, what is the work of righteousness? It is peace. And only Jesus Christ can bring that because only he can give righteousness. Through faith and trust in him. And we see that the millennial kingdom coming to play. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. I don't know about you, but that sure sounds nice, doesn't it? And aren't you looking forward to a time in the kingdom where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in righteousness and peace, and there is quietness, and there is peaceableness, and everything's getting along, and, and that's a fantastic thought. Whatever, I mean, you remember how we see a picture in the animal kingdom, the lion next to the lamb and everything else and, and so forth. We see all those beautiful pictures of the peace that Jesus Christ will bring physically to this world. And I just tell you right now, do not miss it. This world has never known true peace since sin entered. It's never known it. In any government, in any country, any nation. Oh, there may have been pseudo-peace, but it was never lasting. It is never complete. It will not be until Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And he is recognized as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The passage bears it out. My favorite little statement of that one word in our current English language. Back then, I believe it was two words. If you'll notice it, what is the extent of his righteousness? What was letter C here? The permanency of the righteousness and, uh, and peace. Notice that word right there in the middle, right? Forever. It is forever. Everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, it is forever. I love the insertion of that word. Now, one of my favorite verses, okay, and, uh, in, the, in Psalm 85 specifically, is the psalmist talking about the salvation that Christ brings, but also with a nod to the future kingdom. What is that? Psalm 85.10. Notice what the verse says. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What a vivid picture, right? Okay, and uh, what a what a what a uh, just a a, a picture that uh, that is rather descriptive, shall we say? Right, uh, I, I love it. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In other words, he alone is the perfect combination of righteousness and peace. Okay, 
and here's the point, okay? Now, you know, we, we use that terminology, kiss together, okay? When my wife and I kiss, some of our kids are like, ew, okay? This is the good kissing, amen? Just like that is, right, okay? It's the good kissing, right? Because in Jesus Christ, they've kissed each other. They are so close. They are, they are together and inseparable, and it is a beautiful thing, okay? We talk about weddings and so forth. When I, a bride and a groom, they sit up here and they kiss, uh, often the first kiss, and whatever the case may be, that is a beautiful symbol and representation of that union together. You see, in Jesus Christ, there is no greater union of peace and righteousness that could ever be had. It, in Jesus Christ alone, we see righteousness and peace kiss each other. And the picture is this. That brought about your salvation. Without Jesus Christ dying on the cross and providing the righteousness that you and I needed uh, to see our sins washed away, we would never have peace with God. And so in our salvation right now, God wants you and I to rep- recognize and experience the combination of righteousness and peace. And also down the road in the future earthly reign and ministry uh, that Jesus Christ will rule and reign. That, again, will achieve what no earthly kingdom has ever achieved. And that perfect combination of righteousness and peace. And uh, the permanency of the offered peace and righteousness far exceeds and is superior to anything the Levitical priesthood could ever offer. You see, a Jewish person reading this is like, oh, yeah, that's true. Paul, you, you got a good point. You know, we'd have to offer a sacrifice, and it wasn't long before we had to go back. In fact, I remember the high priest, boy, and they'd be thinking every year the high priest has to go in there. We all have to gather together. He has to take our sins, and he puts the hand on the lamb to once again do it all again, represent the laying on of the hands and the sins going onto that lamb and that lamb being taken, even the scapegoat that was let go in the wilderness. All of these aspects were repeated time and time. There was no permanency to the righteousness and peace. But in Jesus Christ there is. And we'll see it even today in some pictures that we'll talk about what happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross. So the simple reality is he is far more superior. Uh, he is a far more superior offering of peace and righteousness. Why? Because he is the real, lasting, permanent thing. Not a temporary per- picture of the real thing as the Levitical uh, priesthood was. Uh, I love that reality. You know what Christ came to do? He came to exchange his righteousness for our filthy rags of sin, thereby creating the means for you and I to be at peace with God forever. He's a great high priest indeed. Now, uh, letter D is what we also see. You see it here, the personage, we'll call it, the personage of the priesthood, literally the person of the priesthood, we could also say there. And uh, let's read verse 3. We haven't read it yet. We'll read verse 3, and then we'll jump down just the very first part of verse 5. Notice verse 3. This is describing Melchizedek. Now, it's an interesting statement. We'll explain it here in a moment. We'll delve into it and try to understand with a statement here. It says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Okay, verse number five. Just the first statement here. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi. Okay? And uh, so you see that statement there in uh, um, uh, that, uh, verse number 5. It kind of alludes to what we're talking about here. Okay? If we were to describe, especially in the presence of a Jewish person, if we were to describe the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood, one of the first characteristics emphasized would be uh, that it's entirely hereditary. It's entirely hereditary. That's why the statement here in verse number 5 is so crucial. 
they are of the sons of Levi. That was a, that was a clarification, a qualification statement. They, they had to be of this, this lineage, this hereditary. Okay? Genealogy determined everything. If you were not of that tribe, if you were not finding your lineage from Aaron and Levi, then you could not be it. All that mattered was that you were from the right tribe, you were right, from the right descendant um, accordingly. Okay? And uh, personal qualifications didn't apply and it didn't really matter. Even today, we, we know of Israel as being a, a um, nation that is obsessed with genealogies and hereditary connections. And they have always been that way. And at the top of that was the priesthood. That was the pinnacle of it. That, that you could trace yourself back to Aaron. That you could be from the tribe of Levi. That was a huge deal. Okay? Even today, and in fact, I think we have the, the letter in there from Brother Dylan. They are dealing with mass uh, immigration. People trying to come into Israel. And many of them trying to prove that they are indeed Jewish. And they will, you have to present your lineage to, to show that you are from that. They keep great records over there because they are very big about that. They're in Israel among the Jews and so forth. And they were certainly in that day. And it's all about the genealogy, the hereditary. In fact, if you were from Aaron, you could serve. If you were not, you couldn't serve in that official position. Okay? One of the things that happened, you remember Korah when he challenged Moses and Aaron and their authority. You remember what that part of the test was? They had to come and bring incense right before the temple. You remember that? Well, immediately, because he was not of the ironic line, he was not part of that, he was struck down immediately. It, it, was a, it was a very quick and decided judgment on them because he had come and offered this incense and God even gave commands for how to deal with the, the scepters that they offered it on and so forth because they were not of that line. They were not of the de- determined and designated line. And so God took that very seriously and so the Jews took that very serious likewise, right? So you can imagine... The priests then were more concerned about pedigree than they were their holiness, okay? Not to say that the priests weren't holy. Certainly many were. Some, I think Zechariah there was a priest. I think he was probably holy, lived uh, as best as he could, a holy life. It's not to say they're all uh, not holy. The reality was, though, they were more concerned with the pedigree. Okay? It became of a bigger idea of your lineage, your hereditary that you could prove and show than it was your holiness, your personal living, if you could put it that way. One of the great examples of that would be Eli's son, right? And both sons, okay? And how wickedly they performed, and yet they were of the high priest line and so forth, okay? And Hophni and Phinehas and such. And so we see that borne out even in the Old Testament. Now, contrast that with what we know of Melchizedek. If someone came up to you and said, hey, tell me about the, the lineage of Melchizedek. Where'd he come from? Tell, tell me about the line of Melchizedek. Where, where is that? And there's not much there. In fact, there's nothing there, right? Other than Jesus Christ being identified with the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so we would say this, there's no traceable lineage for Melchizedek. And that would just kind of make the Jew kind of step back a second, kind of look, ponder. You're saying there's no tracing of Melchizedek to a lineage or hereditary in fact, I like the statement here in verse number three. It can be a little confusing, but notice what it says. It says he doesn't have a mother. He doesn't have a father. It uses the term there's no descent without descent. There's no traceable lineage. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that he came from nowhere. And I don't believe it is um, a surefire evidence or proof that he was a Christophany, though, again, as I said a couple weeks ago, that might be a possibility. I would not necessarily rule it out, but I, I think a simple explanation of the statements of this verse is that what Paul is saying is, in the Old Testament, there's no record given. 
We have no record of his mother. We have no record of his father. We really have no record of his birth. We have no record of his death. We have no record. Nothing is given. Because, again, in the Old Testament, what is Genesis a lot of? Lineage. And -and so-and-so begat. So-and-so begat. So-and-so begat. Okay? And, boy, we have it. It's a huge deal uh, in the Old Testament among the Jews. And I think the author here is just simply saying, we we don't know who his mother is. We don't know who his father is. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. He's without descent, without lineage. And, man, to the Jewish readers, like... Where's the validation? Where's the legitimacy of his priesthood? How do we see that this is who he is? Again, they looked at that pedigree. Okay? And yet nothing is recorded about his origin, his family line, that lineage, where he came from. And as we said, there's nothing about his birth or death. Now, I think one of the most amazing aspects about verse number 3, okay? If you care about etymology and the source of words and everything else, uh, uh, the origin of words, I think there's a really unique part here in verse number 3. There is a word in verse number 3 in the Greek that is used only once in the Scriptures, and it has never yet been found in any Greek manuscript anywhere in any time. It's a single word that's not used anywhere else and has never been used else. And I think there's an obvious reason why that is the case, okay? It's the Greek word that is translated as without descent. And uh, it is a Greek word that is closely associated. In fact, we might have, I didn't study the full etymology of it, but we may have derived our own English word, genealogy, from it. Why? Because this is what the Greek word is, uh, genealogy toss. Okay, and so you see genealogy in there and so forth, and sometimes we've derived our words from such. Okay, it's an interesting thought. Now, this is a word that does not occur anywhere else in Scripture, nor does it occur in any known Greek text, manuscript, however you describe it. And so it's obvious why, because it would be of little use. In fact, it is somewhat, some would term, a useless word. Because even a person who can't trace it would have a lineage. Even a person who doesn't know it would still have some sort of lineage. And so the word is kind of one of those that you would say, well, that's kind of a useless word. So what is the point here? Well, it's the argument of whether you, uh, you say Paul invented a word, okay? Well, the, the argument would be from what? The argument is from silence, okay? It's an argument from silence. In other words, the void, the absence of something uh, that he's making the argument from. And it's a valid one. Why? Because here's the point, and don't miss it, because this is powerful to the statement that Paul's making, more importantly, that God is making. Okay? Melchizedek's lineage in origin is not uh, uh, are, are, are irrelevant to the legitimacy of his priesthood. See, what the Jews valued as the one thing in their mind that gave legitimacy or value to someone's priesthood was lineage, was hereditary, was pedigree. Okay? And God is making a point with the introduction of Melchizedek back in Genesis there and then now in Hebrews the reiteration of said listen that's not what matters what matters is the person of the priesthood in other words God himself designating that person and that person having the qualifications to be that priest as Jesus Christ was and so it's an interesting presentation here. The Holy Spirit, we could say, is trying to help the Jewish believe and open their eyes to the fact that though genealogy was everything to the Aaronic priesthood, it was nothing to the Melchizedek priesthood. It's not about tracing it. It's not about finding your connection. Okay? Now, let's think about this as it applies to Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ obviously had a genealogy. But it was not important or significant to legitimize his priesthood. Now, let me ask you this. Was Christ's genealogy at all important? 
Well, yes, it was. It was clearly, in fact, so much so that we have it repeated for us in the New Testament, right? Okay, so though the genealogy of Christ was not necessary or inconsequential when it came to his priesthood, the fact is, as it is presented that you can trace his, now don't miss it, the royal lineage to David and eventually also to the tribe of Judah from whom was promised what? The coming Christ, the Messiah. So was the lineage important? Yes, it sure was. In fact, that's why we have it here laid out for us in the Scriptures. Matthew and Mark both record at least parts of the, uh, his lineage for us. One goes all the way back to Adam, in fact. And so we have that tracing of it. It's important. His lineage. In fact, Matthew starts it out, his book, his letter, with the lineage of Jesus Christ. But notice what he does not tie it to. He does not tie it to some priesthood. He does not tie it to Aaron. He doesn't even try, in some sense, prove it, to, it ties to Melchizedek. It wasn't pertinent to the priesthood, but it was pertinent to the royalty. He was the king who would sit upon whose throne? The throne of? David, that he would come of the tribe of Judah, from who the promised one was, the Christ, the anointed one would come. It was crucial for that important, so God would show the fulfillment of those promises in that, but when it came to the priesthood, he didn't need a connection to the Levitical priesthood. He was chosen as a priest because of his personage, who he was, his personal worth and quality. I'd put it this way, he was chosen because of what he was, not what pedigree he held. What was he? Well, we have a high priest that can be touched with our infirmities, like no other. We have a high priest that offered the perfect sacrifice once and for all. We serve a perfect high priest who understands all that we face and yet was without sin. We could go on and on, the description of who Jesus Christ is, the quality, the value, the worth of who he was in his personage as a person far outshines and outweighs any appeal to any kind of lineage or hereditary. He alone could do what he did. He alone, and I love how Paul puts it here in the book of Hebrews, he could go behind the veil. <laughs> he, he was the only one worthy to go behind the veil. And he didn't have to offer a sacrifice first. He didn't have to have bells on the, the bottom of his outfit just in case he keeled over or a rope tied to his foot as they sometimes did there in Israel. He didn't have to have any of that. Spiritually, he alone could go behind the veil because he was the perfect high priest. He was the Savior, the very quality. He is the God. He is God himself. He is the perfect Lamb of God. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah. He is the one who lived a perfect, sinless life and his is an endless life. Well, would you look down? We're not there yet, but would you look down at verse number 16? It's something Paul appeals to. Notice what he says in, in this verse, okay? Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. He appeals to it later. We'll get to more of the context there, but it's the same idea that he presents for us here. What is that, okay? That... <laughs> This is the picture that Melchizedek presents or provides of Christ as there's no recorded genealogy of Melchizedek. No mother, no father, no, no record of his birth or his death. So what does that mean? Well, since his death is not recorded, it is as if Melchizedek is still serving as priest and king of the Most High God. It's a powerful statement. And we'll get a little bit more into it and explain next week. Time has gotten away from us. I think it'd be best for us to stop here. But it gives a beautiful picture of the reality that 
Well, Jesus Christ is not about the lineage. It's all about who he is. And in being who he is, he is far superior and supreme to anything the Levitical priesthood could offer. Next time, we'll get into letter E there and following. We'll add a, a couple more to it likewise.